0: This morning, I wanted to share with you one of the things that we're talking about in RUF, the campus ministry that this church supports, the ministry of this denomination, this presbytery up at New Mexico State. This spring, we're every week for 13 weeks looking at different psalms. And what we're calling this series applies to this morning as well. We're calling this series, and I would say to you, the psalms are the sound of faith and the noise of life. Uh, We have to purge our minds of any ideas of the Psalms being two priests in a monastery with candlelight and incense and they're meditating and humming. We tend to have very sanitized spiritual ideas come to our minds when you hear the word Psalms. But the Psalms uh, happen in the noise of everyday life, the rough and tumble, the gritty spectrum of what kind of days and weeks we have. That's what that's. What they arose out of, that's what they meet you in the midst of, the noise of life. And so we need to purge out of our minds the monastery view and put into your mind uh, whatever kind of week you had, whatever kind of day you had, um, whatever kind of traffic you drove through to get here. That's where the Psalms best fit, is in that kind of a place. And so Psalm 131 is a place that might feel very uh, foreign to us. It's a Psalm of David, very short three verses where David is talking about the tranquility and the peacefulness, the calmness of his soul. And I think the way Psalm 131, the way we experience it is maybe if you've had this experience happen to you before at a restaurant, either you've already ordered your meal or you haven't ordered yet. You're looking through the menu and you see a plate go by to another table and you're like, all bets are off at that point. You're like, I want that. Waiter, what's he having Tell me about it. That's what I want. If you have already ordered, you have buyer's remorse. You're like, is it too late to go pull the ticket out of the kitchen so I can get that? (coughs) If you haven't ordered yet, you switch it. Well, this is a psalm. This is a picture of a man's soul, of his inner life, of his insides. And it is so appealing and it smells so good and looks so good uh, that no matter where you are, you're calling the waiter back and saying, I want what he's having. I want that. And by comparison, the way our lives are right now, the way our souls feel, the way our hearts are postured right now uh, looks um, inferior in comparison. And so part of what God is doing for you this morning is walking by you with a beautiful plate to increase your appetite for what he's willing to give his people uh, through Jesus. That's what's happening here the way we're going to um, kind of see that is by looking uh, at three things, um, because this is a picture of a, of a stilled, calm soul, uh, and so it also holds out for us the diagnosis of a restless, quietless, stressed out heart or life or insides. So there's three things we want to look at. The first, we're restless people because we have an inflated view of ourselves, a deflated view of God. And until those two things are reversed, true rest will always be elusive. So true rest, the main point of all of this is true rest, this soul saturating rest, only really comes when we see a very big and limitless God and a very small and limited me. That's when true rest comes. And so let me read this passage for us and then we'll take a look at it. It's in your, uh, printed in your bulletin if you don't uh, have a Bible with you. <clears throat> It's a psalm of David, a psalm of ascents. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. O Christ the King, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, my mind has been occupied this morning with how unworthy I am to speak on behalf of you. And even how unworthy we are to hear from you. We know from our lives uh, when people provoke each other, when we fall short of love, when we do wrong to another, what usually happens is silence. The person won't talk to us anymore. We Get the cold shoulder. Uh, They pretend like we don't exist and we do this to others. And Father, the thought that we have provoked you this week the thought that we have run from you, the thought that we have ignored you, the thought that we have played God and thought nothing of it, and yet you still talk to us. And yet you still love us. Father, that alone this morning is both confusing and wondrous to us, that you love us still in Christ, that you speak to us still, even though what last night was like for us or yesterday or this week Would you help us to believe that you do love us, that your promises are steady, that they're not fickle, that they don't turn on a dime? We need to believe this if we're to hear from you this morning. And so make this passage food for our soul, not just the plate of beautiful smelling food that passes us by and disappoints us. But would this be the plate that comes to our table, that we taste it? that we taste you, that we get a glimpse of Jesus, our true rest. Would you change us because of that? We ask this in your holy name. Amen. So you don't need me to tell you this, but maybe you need me to point this out to you again so that you can remember. Uh, But music, the songs that we've even been singing this morning, or if you came to church this morning and had the radio on, or if you had people over last night and you put on some music like we did, The power of music is that it carries you somewhere new. I I told my students uh, last week when we were talking about this psalm, uh, everybody has a study playlist, a Pandora station or a a CD that you put in when you're studying to carry you from a place of distraction to a place of focus. Um, When you're sad, you put on certain kinds of music to carry you from that place of hopelessness or disappointment to a place that you're picked up a little bit better, whatever that is for you. Uh, We have particular kinds of music that we put on when you're working out or when you're running, when you're stressed, when you have a party. Parties are weird until there's music, right? And people know you have to put music on to carry these people from a place of social awkwardness or like kind of klutziness socially to a place of, I'm glad to be here now. This is like a real thing and this is good. Music has power because it carries you from one place to another place, to a new place. And that is um, why Anna and I, pretty early on in Eli's life, had to start singing him to sleep. Because he's all boy, he's bouncing off the walls, he doesn't stop until his head hits the pillow. And so we started singing every night, uh, Abide With Me, to him. Because it's a lullaby, because I guess it's one of Anna's favorite hymns, and it was her idea. And so every night now, or one of us puts him to bed, we sing Abide With Me. You, you sing it here, I think we've sung it here before. Um, fast falls the even tide. Um, the darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other comforts fail uh, and helpers flee, help of the helpless. Abide with me. Um, we sing that every night to him. And what I found is to Eli that song, that music is powerful because it carries him to a place of like bouncing off the walls, to a place of sleepiness like that. It's like magic. But I found it affects me more than it does him, because I'm listening to the words, and whatever kind of day that I've had, my day ends in the dark in Eli's room, holding him, singing over him, and singing over myself, too. Abide with me, abide with me. Um, I need thy presence every passing hour. What but your grace can foil the tempter's power? Who, like thyself, my guide and stay can be? Through cloud and sunshine... Lord, abide with me. First few months, I just sang it. But now, that's kind of become an anthem over our lives. And it carries us from a place of whatever the day was like to to a place of being reoriented. Put back to our wits. Bringing sanity back to us. That's what the Psalms are. Psalms are songs, right? You know that. But did you connect that the psalms are designed to carry you from the place it meets you to a new place? Every psalm is there to carry you to a new place. And this psalm is no different. And, and um, they carry us ultimately to the Lord, to, to the person of God. Not to techniques or better strategies of how to quiet your soul when you get stressed out. But the psalms carry you to the living God. Really quickly, appreciate with me how different this is than all of the other strategies, techniques, apps, programs we have um, to calm and quiet our soul. And we listen to these things. It's like trusting the arsonist for better forest fighting techniques or, or, uh, or trusting the drug dealer for addiction therapy strategies. We listen to the very culture, to the very noise out there. We listen with bated ears, teach me how to quiet myself. Not realizing that That was what got us restless and noisy in the first place. This is why things like this happens. Like, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but two weeks into my Christmas break, when the students were out of town, I had this thought pop into my head. I need a break. Like, I I was like ten days deep into a vacation, into a break. I wasn't going to campus every day. Students were out of town. And the thought came into my head, I need a break. I just feel restless inside, noisy, stressed out. And I was like, wow, the irony of this. But you go on vacations and you come back worse than when you left on it. Or you say no to particular commitments. It's February, maybe already when, you know, sports for your kids are picking up or work responsibilities. The small group you said you would go to here. You're reading the fine print now and you're like, how do I get out of that? And maybe you don't go one night, maybe you don't come to church one Sunday morning to get work done, and you know what happens. That hour that you would have been at that small group, or that three hours you would have been at church, isn't fruitfully spent, right? You remain restless, you remain noisy on the inside, chaos remains. Which means that finding rest for our souls isn't as simple as cutting stuff out of our schedule Going on vacation, working out, taking a run, it's not that simple. You can rest and the restlessness remains, right? Y'all know that. It's a hard thing. It's why this is kind of an enigma. And it also means that we have trouble putting our finger on the real root cause of the restlessness inside of us. Why we always feel so stressed out, like we're on a hair trigger. When's the next thing that's going to go wrong? that I'm not in control of, that makes me lose it. Well, the first thing I wanted to talk about, this psalm shows us, is we are restless because we have an inflated view of ourselves. Here's how that plays out here. Flannery O'Connor gets us started. She kind of brings us down to earth first. She's the old Southern Catholic novelist. Uh, They discovered her prayer journal recently. It was like handwritten in this little stenographer's pad, and they... This the first half of this prayer is missing Uh, the first page was torn in half and so this is where it picked up and beautiful this is her image of me being so inflated that it affects how I feel on the inside and it affects how I see the Lord she she writes she prays dear God I cannot love you the way that I want to love you you are the slim crescent of a moon that I see and I am the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing the whole moon. The crescent is very beautiful, but what I'm afraid of, dear God, is that my own shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon and that I will see that thin sliver of a moon and think that that's you and think that you're nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. Please uh, please help push me aside. She's saying, I am so big that I am casting a shadow on God, and he appears so small by comparison. When this psalm talks about it, uh, talks about rest, and it's opposite, a heart that is too high or too lifted up, eyes that are raised too high, mind that is preoccupied with things too great and too marvelous for us, That is what happens. The balloon, it's like we blow air in the balloon. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. God appears smaller and smaller and smaller. And we begin to judge him by the thin crescent that's left from our shadow. And he becomes dismissible, ignorable, irrelevant, inconsequential. Or to use John the Baptist language, I had this printed in the bulletin right below here. Just glance down every now and then. But John the Baptist, when he talks about, I must decrease if you're to increase, And I must decrease because Christ must increase. There's this proportional relationship. The bigger I am, the more inflated I am, the more deflated uh, God is in my perception, right? And what follows immediately after, if you have a small God, your life is coming unhinged all the time. Because you're having to rush in to fill his place. But the good thing here is that Psalm 131 speaks clarifying sanity into this noise. Uh, into the whirlwind, there's a laser-like line that points a way out of here, and it's very specific in its diagnosis of our restless hearts. Not clumsy. A clumsy, unhelpful diagnosis would be, well, I have a sinful, selfish heart, so I guess I should repent. Well, thank you for the memo. That's great news. I was aware of that, but is there anything more specific that you can say to show me how, in this particular struggle, this particular death spiral that we get caught in of stress, being overwhelmed, restless, noisy, is there a specific way out of that? Well, this psalm identifies three ways. These are kind of subpoints under that. How we overinflate ourselves? There's three ways we blow that balloon up, and it gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> the first is we have an inflated, or an overinflated sense of what we deserve. We get stressed, we lose sight of God, we become huge, he becomes small because we have an overinflated view of what I deserve out of life, what I deserve from you, what I deserve from God. Uh, David Pallison is a counselor, he works for a group called the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, and he, he has this idea that he uses a lot, puts in a lot of his articles called Ladders to Nowhere, and it's the way that he describes idolatry. He says when a human being starts pursuing an idol, we are building a ladder because we think the higher we get on that ladder, the closer we get to nirvana or whatever we want. Enlightenment, peace, comfort, control over life. And by necessity, the higher we get on the ladder, the more we look down on everybody else who's a few rungs below us. So, uh, so pride and idolatry necessitates feeling superior to everybody else. A heart lifted up which the Bible uses the word haughty or proud or arrogant or chest poked out as synonyms for a heart too lifted it up. Um, that's what this means is that we are building ladders, but there's nothing at the top. You get to the top, you get the money, you get the control, you get the fame, you get the worship from the other people, and you realize, man, there's nothing here. All I am is tired and have a really good view at my foolishness <laughs> and a waste of my time. And when we, when we get a little bit higher on that, we feel like life's going really well. I'm getting a little bit closer, a little bit closer. I'm almost there. And when we fall down the rungs on these ladders to nowhere, uh, we feel dejected, depressed, anxious, behind. Like I'm not catching, I'm not where I need to be. And it's an insane cycle. It's, an, it's insanity. And what we, we think we deserve, what's at the top of these ladders I deserve a peaceful, tranquil life where circumstances themselves don't bother me. And I'm going to rearrange everything in my family, my marriage, my life, my job to get there. And what it causes, you know, is just more chaos because it's a ladder to nowhere. There's nothing at the top of the ladder. The more we climb, we just get more tired and our hearts are restless because of it. We think we have a right to be adored by everybody. And so when anybody threatens to adore us the way we think we have a right to, um, we either look down at them from our perch, higher than them on the ladder, or we look up at them and crave the day that they will validate us. And we feel inferior and envious and jealous and whatever else. But these ladders to nowhere, we think we deserve more than we actually do. And we chase after those things. And it, it, those other lovers... Uh, make us restless. Because deep down, you know you're never going to get what you most want out of it. That's what causes the anxiety. It is elusive. It's slippery. The second way we blow air in this balloon and overinflate ourselves is we have an overinflated uh, sense of our own ability or of our own abilities. Okay? This is where he's talking about um, eyes that are raised too high. What he means by that, David is not arguing against ambition because ambition can be holy it can be sanctified being motivated in life is not a bad thing having goals purpose wanting to grow is not a bad thing wanting to be better at this or that is not a bad thing but he's talking about ambition that is too high this word too keeps appearing it's suggesting insanity it's suggesting hearts that are aimed at the wrong place eyes that are aimed at the wrong place minds thoughts that are aimed at the wrong place All too high. They're all above the target. And so he's talking about ambitions or or aspirations that pretend like we are not on a leash. They pretend like they're the dog that runs away thinking he's not on a leash until his neck gets choked back. Here's what I mean that we're on a leash and then why it's a good thing that we are. One of the reasons we get so stressed, we have an overinflated sense of our own abilities, which means we deny the limits of our humanity. God loves to put limits on things. Now, the way your ears hear that is probably in a negative sense. Like, well, how, how oppressive of him? But think back to Genesis 1. Limits were never a bad thing until sin came into the world and suggested limits are evil. That's what the devil told Adam. You can be like God. You can transcend all the limitations that he put on you to constrain you and enslave you and kill you. Don't live under the thumb of the man any longer. You can be like him. But before that, for however long creation lasted until sin entered the picture, limits were a good thing. God said to the sun, I want you there and not there. I want you in the daytime, not the nighttime. To the fish, it is good that you stay there And don't come over here. To the sea. And Job, he says, The Lord said to the sea, commanding it, Go thus far and no farther. Because God wanted the land to be distinguished from the sea. Everything had limits. People had limits. Boundaries. Leashes. And it was good. And God said it was good. It was very good. But then sin comes in. And it suggests that those limits are the thing that's killing us. It said, It's not your boundaries that's bringing you life, it's your limitations. Your limitations are what's making you restless. So reach outside of those limitations of a 24-hour day. Here's an app for that that'll give you a 26-hour day. Reach outside of those limitations that you're not omnipresent. Now you have phone and Skype and, and, and uh, whatever the Apple version of that is, whatever. You have all these things that make you omnipresent. And so people, continents away, now expect your omnipresence and it stresses us out because we are expected to be multiple places at the same time we're expected to know everything knowledge is power right omniscience is power and that's what we want omnipotence is power and that's what we want and so we really do believe deep down that boundaries are killing me and the way out of this my new year's resolutions are really usually always about getting out of these boundaries Breaking free of the leash. Here's why this is a bad thing. Think about boundaries like a socket. It's a good thing that my femur is happy with the boundaries and limitations my hip socket gives it. Yes, it constrains my leg. My leg can't go do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, the way it wants. It is rather radically constrained and limited in what it can do. But that socket holds it in place to be able to do what it was made to do. Yes, it's limited, but yes, it's functional. When it pops out of socket, if this has ever happened to you, God bless you. Please don't describe what that was like. If this has happened to you, you lose functionality, you feel a great amount of pain, and you can't live life until it's back at where it needs to be. It's the same with a human being's heart or soul. It is made for a specific context, for boundaries, for limits. And when it is there, when it is postured rightly, it can function. It can operate almost seamlessly, subconsciously, without pain, without without disfigurement. But when it is out of socket, when we reach beyond our limitations as human beings, try to be omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, have a 26-hour day, be all things to all people, be perfect, be the perfect wife, the perfect husband, the perfect employer, the perfect leader, the perfect manager, the perfect elder, the perfect small group leader. When we reach beyond our limitations, it pulls your heart out of socket and it hurts. And we experience that as restlessness. The last thing, how we blow air in this balloon and get overinflated is that we have an overinflated sense of what we're responsible for an overinflated sense of what God asks of us, what we're responsible for. Think about the word responsible. It's two words pushed together, response, able. If you're responsible for something, it presumes you are able to launch a response to it, right? You're responsible to drive on the right side of the road, presumes you're able to drive on the right side of the road. (coughs) Responsible. But we have a hard time discerning Things that we're concerned about and wish would go a certain way with things we are responsible for and can do something about or that God calls us to. Paul David Tripp calls, these, calls this our, our biblical job description. What falls in the biblical job description and what isn't mentioned in it that might still be an area of concern? Here's what I mean um, sanity comes back, rest comes back when we remember what God has called us to do in a situation and entrust to him the things that he has not called us or equipped us to do um Anna's boss at Vil- when she worked at Village 7 Presbyterian up in Colorado Springs would often tell her Anna there's one God and you're not him and it was in the context of overworking I think any pastor and all of you it doesn't have to be a pastor or someone in ministry you feel overworked you have a messy messiah complex um, I think over the break, I worry about my students because I really do believe, partly out of love for them, partly out of my own pride, who's taking care of them if I'm not there? Are they all going to fall away from God? As if Jesus isn't shepherding his sheep, but I have an overinflated sense of my responsibility. I have a hard time confessing what John the Baptist said, the hardest words that might have ever tumbled over a human being's tongue and out into the air. I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Lord's anointed. We confess the opposite. I want to be the Christ. I want to be the Messiah. I want to be the all-powerful one. I want to do it all. I want to have my hands in everything. I want to believe that I can change providence. Um, Here's the ways we do this really quickly, and we'll scoot on. Uh, to wrap this up we think and we should we we should faithfully prepare for a small group bible study if you're the leader maybe you're one of the elders in the group you should you're called to love your neighbors by preparing by thoughtfully preparing and praying for that but you cannot make people come you are responsible to invite them to throw out the welcome mat y'all prayed earlier to be a hospitable people you are responsible for that you are not responsible For making people come. When we forget about this we get manipulative and guilt trippy. Why aren't you coming to church? I've invited you. I've prayed that you would come and you still aren't coming. We are responsible to raise our children in the admonition of the Lord. We are not responsible. And are not in control of them actually walking with Jesus. And when we forget that. When we confuse an area of concern. We should be concerned that they walk with the Lord. But can you make that happen yourself? If you forget that, you become either a nagging parent, a manipulative parent, an always distraught parent, a helicopter parent. Because you are having to do what you're thinking God isn't doing. And you've confused the areas of things we should be concerned about with things that God says you're responsible for. I am responsible to love my spouse. God, that that falls in my biblical job description. To pray for her, encourage her, overlook sins. But she can't change my heart and I can't change her heart. That is the Lord's responsibility. And if you confuse those two, you know what happens. All of our marriages bear the scars of trying to change our spouses because we couldn't tell the difference in something that we should be concerned about, maybe grieved about, maybe hopeful, praying about. We confuse that with not praying about it, but just doing it. Cornering them into a place of change. Maybe this last one for an example. I can give myself to the means of grace. God says, you want to find me? It's like President Obama could say, you want to find me? Go to the Oval Office. God says, you want to find me? Go to the Scriptures. Go to the go to the fellowship in the church, go to the sacraments, go to prayer, I will be there. We, we are responsible, we are able to respond, and to our detriment when we neglect those means of grace, we feel the pain. But are you therefore responsible for sanctifying your soul, for transforming your heart into the likeness of Christ? Or is that something we wait upon the Lord to do as we use the means he's given us by faith? Which brings incredible sanity to you if you're, otherwise you are endlessly frustrated. God, why haven't you changed me here yet? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? Well, you feel exhausted. Maybe you've even left the church or left the faith for a season because you've confused something that you can be grieved about, your own sin pattern, prayerful about, And yet, walk away from those prayers, leaving it in the hands of the Lord who says he will bring freedom to you in those areas. David writes that my mind isn't preoccupied with things too great and too marvelous for me. He doesn't say, I checked out, let go and let God. He doesn't get out of the driver's seat of his life. Car doesn't go if David's not there making decisions, living by faith. But he does say that the the way to soul-saturating rest is learning this discernment of who God is and who I am. He is God and I am me. He is big and limitless and powerful and I am small and limited and weak. Sanity returns that. And this is the other point and I just want to spend maybe 60 seconds on this by telling you a story of our second point of that we are restless people because God is too small. We have, an, we have a deflated perception of him here's how this plays out um RUF does a summer conference every year I think they've been doing it 25 or 30 years uh, down in Florida and there's three weeks of it the week that that I've been at usually is the biggest week 2,000 people there in the mornings these students go to any number of 45 offerings of seminars Um, they have their choice they pick and campus ministers will will teach them on some topic or another and uh Several years ago, I went to a seminar. I'd been to this conference so many times, I was running out of options. I went to this seminar called Jesus, and it was the best seminar I've ever been to. I was surprised. I thought it was, my expectations weren't too high of it, but we went, and it was the first time. It's like someone unlocked the Old Testament for me. I was like, oh my gosh, the whole Bible is about Jesus. He is beautiful, He is huge. It's all about Him. And there were six people out of 2,000 people at that conference who saw the description of the Jesus Seminar and wanted to go. That same conference, I also went to the second slot, to the Anxiety and Depression Seminar. And it was a room double this size, and it was standing room only, probably 400 people in the Depression and Anxiety Seminar. And I couldn't miss the irony. We are a stressed-out, anxious, disappointed people who think that our problem is rooted in logistics and needing to streamline our schedule or simplify our life. And that was a great seminar on anxiety and depression. They talked about Jesus a lot, but I'm talking about why when we, when we recognize the anxiety, the noise in our lives, we go straight to the seminar, the quick fix, the drive-through answer. Give me a cure for my anxiety. And we don't realize it actually has everything to do with the person of God himself. And who we see Him to be and ourselves to be. And so the Jesus, that, that seminar in Jesus was eventually eliminated because no one would come to it. Now it's not like he's not being preached at every other seminar, but you get what I'm saying. There's a problem in our perception. We have a small God, and we are very big. We're very big in fixing our problems, and we don't see how actually knowing and loving the Lord is connected to that. Job had this problem, too, right? This is our last point. Until these things are reversed, until God becomes big and I become small, that the soul is put back into socket and we begin to move, that's when true soul-saturating rest, rest that is immune to circumstances. That's when it comes back. You remember Job when he said at the end of the chapter, I had spoken about things I did not know. This is Job's oops. I don't mean to make light of it. Job went through the ringer. But Job said, I had heard of you, Lord, but now I have seen you, and I repent in dust and ashes. I know that you can do all things, Lord, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. See sanity coming back? See responsibility versus concern coming back? Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me, Lord. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. He's not saying I hate myself. He's saying, man, I'm all the way down in the dirt now. See? What happened to the disciples when they were stressed out beyond their wits in the midst of a storm? What did it take? for rest to come back, for sanity to be restored. A big Jesus walking on water saying, I am, and saying, peace be still, and sanity came back. Why were the Jews terrified and stressed out at the edge of the sea? They were that way until a big God showed up through a big deliverance, and they became small again, and they found rest. The Christians after Jesus was crucified, stressed out, anxious, preoccupied until they saw God resurrect him. And they saw Jesus ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father and rest returned. This is what I mean. This is what we call worship. Worship is getting a glimpse of the living God. Worship is what we've been doing. When you see him, it reorders our lives. It reorders our hearts. We become small and he becomes big. And this is what David leaves us with. It's the only to-do item from this psalm. He says in verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord. It's the only command in the psalm. Hope in the Lord. In other words, uproot your hopes from these ladders to nowhere and plant them in the Lord. Relocate them in the Lord. In this way only, it is through worship that our hearts are reoriented. How do you worship? Let this psalm be a starting point. This can be your new script next time we stumble upon stress. Oh Lord, my my heart is not too raised up. My eyes are not raised up higher than they should be. My mind, I am releasing my mind from being preoccupied with things that are of your responsibility, not mine. And the last thing that David says He gives us this image of a baby that's weaned. A picture of a child that's weaned in its mother's lap. Who weans a child? Does a child wean itself? Or does the the mother patiently, strategically wean that child off? When you leave here and you say, well, how how do I find true rest for my soul? There is that for you to do, hope in the Lord. Wrestle with your heart to re-aim its hopes, to re-aim your thoughts. But there's something that God does too. Through every piece of stress in your life, he is weaning you and weaning me from the world. He is calling you back. He is maturing you by taking things away that you think you need, by crashing over those ladders to nowhere. How do we experience that? Stress. That's the ticket. That's the funny thing here. It is through stress that God is weaning you from the very idols that cause you stress and make you noisy and make you chaotic. Our prayer to close is how Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are our rest. Rest isn't a thing, rest is a person. You have accomplished our rest. Psalm 131 is an MRI of your heart. You are the God-man, and yet your heart was not lifted up in haughtiness. Your eyes were not lifted up too high. Your mind was not preoccupied with things too great and too marvelous for you. Your soul was calmed and quieted. You trusted your Father. And you died the death of a haughty, proud, arrogant, idol-chasing man that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we access this rest by your substitutionary atonement, and we access this rest by you painstakingly and patiently using stress to free us from stress. Make this true of our lives. Give us a glimpse of you that we might come back to sanity. Amen.